Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today we're still working through Systematic Theology 2. We are now in the doctrine of salvation. Last time we talked about the effectual call, regeneration, and adoption all in one episode. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. uh, Just compiled them all right there. Yeah, but they're, they're... They're... Yeah, especially adoption, but yeah. Yeah. Um, So today we're going to talk about justification, which we're going to keep it to one episode, but... Which means we're not answering every and all question. (laughs) Yeah, but this could be its own entire podcast. And in fact, there are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I think we said it last time. Um, At some point, we'll then develop all of these in a more full way, because I think I've got Burkhauer's justification it's a a thick volume all by itself i mean that's not the purpose of a systematic theology yeah yeah. touching and establishing good orthodox teaching and then leaving stuff unspoken yeah well and then this topic it's it's forever evolving and changing and being talked about and so it's just it can get complex but we'll keep it uh simple for a systematic theology or try to keep it simple and so just to begin with a few quotes uh they're a little bit lengthy but good quotes helpful quotes and just starting the discussion on this issue Uh, so this comes from pink and his doctrine of justification he says between protestants and romanists talking about roman catholics there's a wide difference of opinion as to the meaning of the term justify roman catholicism affirms that to justify is to make inherently righteous and holy Protestants insist that to justify signifies only to formally pronounce just or legally declare righteous. Popery includes <laughs> under justification. <laughs> you know there's some cutting. Oh, there's po- that, this is pure pink. <laughs> <laughs> Say it without laughing. <laughs> well, I just want to, when I said it, I was like, I was thinking of potpourri. Um, but, <laughs> that smells good. Yeah. Um, so popery is in the Pope uh, and all of it everything associated with that popery includes under justification the renovation of man's moral nature or deliverance from depravity thereby confounding justification with regeneration and sanctification on the other hand all representative protestants have shown that justification refers not to a change of moral character but to a change of legal status though insisting that radical change of character invariably accompanies it It is a legal change from a state of guilt and condemnation to a state of forgiveness and acceptance. And this change is owing solely to a gratuitous act of God founded upon the righteousness of Christ being imputed to his people. All right. So the next guy we'll quote is Calvin himself. He says, we simply explain justification to be an acceptance by which God receives us into his favor and esteems us as righteous persons. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation, that's a key word there, uh, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Justification, therefore, is no other than an acquittal from 
from guilt of sin. Uh, oh no, acquittal from guilt of him who was accused, as though his innocence has been proved. Since God therefore justifies us through the mediation of Christ, he acquits us not by an admission of our personal innocence, but by an imputation of righteousness, so that we who are unrighteous in ourselves are considered as righteous in Christ. And then, um, who else is this? Packer. This one's a little lengthy too. Justification is a judicial act of God pardoning sinners, wicked and ungodly persons, such as Romans 4, 5, accepting them as just, and so putting permanently right their previously estranged relationship with himself. This justifying sentence is God's gift of righteousness, such as Romans 5, 15 through 17, and his bestowal of a status of acceptance for Jesus' sake, which is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Uh, God's justifying judgment seems strange, for pronouncing sinners righteous may appear to be precisely the unjust action of the judge's part that God's uh, own law forbade. Yet it is, in fact, a just statement, for its, it is, for its basis is the righteousness of Christ, who is the last Adam and our representative head acting on, on our behalf obeyed the law that bound us and endured the retribution for lawlessness that was our due and so merited our justification. So we are just, that's a very dense uh, section right there. Uh, So we are justified justly on the basis of justice done and Christ's righteousness reckoned to our account, which is Romans 5, 18 through 19. God's justifying decision is the judgment of the last day declaring where we shall spend eternity, brought forward into the present and pronounced here and now. It is the last judgment that will ever be passed on our destiny. God will never go back on it, however much Satan may appeal against God's verdict. To be justified, therefore, is to be eternally secure. That's a wonderful last. He he writes so well. Yeah, he does. Um, The... Oh, that comes from his concise theology. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that that I I would I I think that is the entire yeah it sounds like it section because that if if that's another book we it's can a great highly recommend yeah. it is really if you don't have it you should own it 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 really is a great little concise theology it's about that long each thing and he and in that way that only Packer can write he just wonderfully lays yeah. out some good stuff. And if you read it with his voice in your mind, I wish <laughs> it's even better. Yeah, is um, he still alive? He is. Yes, is he He's, doing public stuff? Uh, I, I have know. not seen or heard. I mean, he's he's very he's aged. Old. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. but yeah, he's still around. So let's begin with some terms. Um, so let's uh, Sadiq word group in the Old Testament. Uh, this is the the key word when yeah. dealing with justification in the Hebrew. Um, so Girdleston and his cinnamons, cinnamon, cinnamons, synonyms. <laughs> so we got potpourri and <laughs> cinnamons. And we're all we're about the allspice today, you know. Um, he, he says the ideas of righteousness, justification, and acquittal all cluster around this one verbal root, talking about Sadiq, and are seen to be parts of the whole. Uh, George Ladd in his New Testament theology says the basic meaning of the word is that norm in the affairs of the world to which men and things should conform and by which they can be measured. 
The righteous man is the man who conforms to the given norm. The verb to be righteous, tzaddik, means to conform to the given norm, and in certain forms, especially in the hifil, which is just a verbal form in the Hebrew, it means to declare righteous or to justify. Okay, so there's three basic spheres which this word uh, group is going to operate. The first is what's known as a forensic, oh boy, that's hard for me to do, the forensic sphere i.e. justification, uh, declaring or pronouncing one righteous. Uh, and examples of that would be like the famous one is Genesis 15, 6, where God declares him to be righteous. Uh, why? Because he believed him. Uh, Exodus 23, 7, 1 Kings 8, 32, and some others. So that's a key one, the forensic. Then the state of sphere. Uh, in connection with his justifying act of God, we must reckon with the possibility that the justifying act, though strictly forensic in character, might still have res have respect to a righteousness of character and behavior predictable of the persons justified. All that means, in other words, is though righteousness is not imparted but imputed, there's still a change that occurs in the person's behavior, which is why Pink was saying, you know, we can't, we don't want to confuse sanctification and justification. They're two distinct doctrines, but the Roman Catholic Church literally Conflates makes them. them. Yeah. yeah. Um, ooh, you use the fancy word, conflate. One of my favorite words. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I feel very smart when I get to use it. Did you? When I get to use it. Um, you know, it's just so much part of my natural. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and with your humility, <laughs> yeah. you don't even notice it. Yeah. Uh, one day I'll attain that. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So <laughs> since now a person is in the state of righteousness, it naturally follows that their life will progressively conform to that state through the process called sanctification. So a righteous person is in the process is in the process of becoming what they already have been declared. That's a well used statement, but it's a good one. Um, they're in the process of becoming what they have already been declared. Right. Then, then the so you've got the uh, the forensic sense, the state of sense or sphere, and then finally there's that ethical sphere. Is that hard for you to get the sphere? No. That word, pronounce it. No, I don't know, my lips don't want to do it. Yeah. Well, oh, well, you got, yeah. I have a speech impediment. Right. Um, th so there is that ethical sphere. The, the root tzaddik, uh, this is from John Murray, it says, is frequently used in the Old Testament to denote the quality of righteousness of justice and is preeminently predicated of God. As applied to God, it refers to his attribute of righteousness of justice. It is also predicated of men and describes their character or conduct of both as upright or just or righteous. All right, then you have in the New Testament uh, the opposite, uh, the same word for static, but it's uh, in the Greek, and, and it, it's got, uh, it's all built around this uh, term or word dick, the dick word group uh, in the New Testament. 95% um, of the time, it, it's used in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament for static. Um, the result is that this word takes on a meaning that is greater than its normal. This is important to know. Yes. Greater than its normal Greek meaning and usage. Rather, its Old Testament connections and roots then help define it. This is one of the reasons why I struggle at times when people try to tell us the New Testament doesn't mean what Orthodox has all, the Orthodox theology has always said because they're looking at just other Greek writings. It's like, look, if they're not intrinsically biblical writings, they're already suspect. And here's a key one, because um, 
it it's not being borrowed. It's it's a word used in the Greek language, but its meaning is coming out of the Old Testament. So yeah. it's a thoroughly biblical meaning. And so in a sense, it takes on its own flavor. And to try to go outside into just pagan, uh, everyday language, uh, you actually end up messing it up, just mm-hmm. an aside. Um, this group, though, is huge. It occurs in 206 verses and over 232 actual times in the New Testament. It is very prominent and it's very pregnant in its meaning. And Paul is the largest user of it. He uses it 59 times alone in Romans. So. Yeah, and that, well, to your point, too, the, uh, Paul, I mean, his world, so obviously he was Greek. I mean, he was in the Greco-Roman world, but his world is the Old Testament. Yes. I mean, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Um and so when, when he's using the language of righteousness, he's pulling from that, he, that Hebrew Old Testament use in all the connotations and denotations of righteousness. He's not merely getting it from some contemporary secular use of the term. Right. And this is why exegesis then becomes so important. You've got to keep it within its context and within the broader context of the whole of the canon. Now, this has been the, the source of a ton of discussion for the last uh, 50 years. It plays a major role, in fact, in the conversation of, in, in this thing that's called a new perspective on Paul. Uh, Sanders and uh, N.T. Wright really brought this to the forefront. And now it's extremely popular. And we're not going to get into all of that. Uh, not least here, but we want you to understand that much of the heat that has been created is a result of presuppositions that involve too narrow of definitions, and that's the problem. Yeah, the that whole conversation seems to kind of have just dissolved. I mean, I, I think it's because in a the lot, popular yeah, realm, at least, I, I mean, think a lot of people have actually just bought into it. There's a whole group that just kind of buy into it, kind of like egalitarianism and complementarianism. Um, a lot of people have just kind of said, ah, I kind of like egalitarianism. We're not going to keep fighting for it yeah. and talking about it. We're just going to yeah, hold to it. We're just going to hold to it. It doesn't matter if it has no exegetical basis. We have writers on our side that say it does. So, shush. Right, right. But that, that's my sense. Yeah. All right. So, uh, coming from Hill in his uh, book on Greek, Greek words and the Hebrew meanings, he writes this. He says, normally when the no- noun is used with reference to man's salvation— it means the status of being in the right, graciously given by God. In a manner akin to Greek usage, both dikais and dikaisune are, are used in an ethical or qualitative sense. This is the case when they refer to that righteousness which must characterize Christian living in obedience to the will of God. We may claim then with confidence that Paul's use of the group of words is firmly rooted in the biblical Greek usage rather than that of classical Greek writers, which we have just talked about. Awareness of this fact has provided us with an essential clue to the interpretation of Paul's language of justification. Uh, now, in the Pauline writings, there is a special emphasis upon the forensic aspect of the word, and the term forensic just it speaks of court language. There, yeah, there's a, don't a, don't get overwhelmed by these. These yeah. are words you have to get used to, but don't allow them to overwhelm you. Yeah. So w- when we're talking forensic, there's a legal aspect of being right or standing right before God. And examples of this would be Romans three twenty, Galatians two one, Titus three seven. You'll also see uh, dikaiao, that's the verbal form uh, used in conjunction with legizomai, which is another verb. Um, And when that happens, it takes on some nuanced meanings. 
Um, and so first as an objective reckoning, um, as keeping a mental record, taking into account, keep in mind, um, or in a secondary way, charging or credit to someone's account. In other words, reckoned to something. Um, but then secondly, uh, it's the result of an objective evaluation. So to consider something, look on or regard as. This is what God is doing with the sinner who's been made righteous. Yeah, he looks upon us as righteous. Yeah. Um, and we would tell you to go back and re-listen to Calvin and the quote by uh, Packer, and that will help draw that out. So that's your basic um, lexical aspect of it. Um, then we get into the theology. And again, we're going to give a quote at this time again from Packer. The doctrine of justification determines a whole character of Christianity as a religion of grace and faith. It defines the saving significance of Christ's life and death by relating both to God's law, or rather, let me emphasize that differently. Uh, it defines the saving significance of Christ's life and death by re relating both to God's law. It displays God's justice in condemning and punishing sin, his mercy in pardoning and accepting sinners, and his wisdom in exercising both attributes harmoniously together through Christ. Yeah. And so all of this is premised off of the tremendous need in man, which is why we always, before you ever get into the doctrine of salvation, you always want to deal with the doctrine of man and sin. Uh, in Romans 1, 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, it drives this point home in the strongest of ways. So again, Packer says, Justification has two sides. On the one hand, it means the pardon, remission, and non-imputation of all sins, reconciliation to God, and the end of his enmity and wrath. On the other hand, it means the bestowal of a righteous man's status and title to all the blessings promised to the just, a thought which Paul amplifies by linking justification with the adoption of believers as God's sons and heirs. Uh, then we'll talk about the grounds of justification. Um, so a question then arises as to how one who is considered totally depraved and without any redeeming quality can be therefore right before God. That's the question. And the answer from the Bible is that the grounds for acquittal are not to be found in man, but they're found wholly in the person of God. Right, right. Um, so it, it's in this reality that there is there's a perceived tension. How does God remain or maintain himself as just while declaring righteous those who are ungodly? Uh, and in fact, it's a good question because in places like Exodus 23, 7 and Isaiah 5, 23, it's clear that this is the kind of corrupt judgment that God actually hates. Yeah, so it's legitimate to ask the question. Right. Uh, you, you want me to read the, the verses and then you make comments? Sure, go ahead. Okay, so Exodus 23, 7 says, Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Uh, and then Isaiah 5, 16 and 23, God will show himself holy in righteousness against those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who who are in the right. So Which seems to be words. what's happening with yeah. Jesus. I mean, he's the one in the right, and yet, <laughs> you know, he's somehow having something taken away. So Packer in Just Justify and Justification says, however, the resolution of this alleged problem is found in our representative Jesus Christ. The ground for a sinner's justification is in Christ's righteousness. 
Romans 3, 35 through 36 clearly brings us out. The basis or grounds of God's justification of the wicked is that the claims that God has against the sinner have been fully satisfied in Christ. In no way can a person say that God ignored his law or violated his own righteous character, for in his rich love he gave his son to us to fulfill us for uh, for us while acting in our stead to fulfill all of his father's demands. Okay, so having said that, there's this critical connection then that you have to understand that's between justification and faith. Hebrews 11.2 and also verse 39 form the foundation of what we see in the Old Testament regarding faith. In 11.2, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, meaning faith, the men of old gained approval. And then verse 39, and all these, these people, uh, men and women who walked by faith, have having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Uh, the key text actually in the Old Testament is Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham is said to have believed God and it was reckoned to him then as righteousness. Now, he didn't see these things. And that's the whole point of the Hebrews passages. He trusted God. He believed that God would be true to his word. And it was at that point that he believed the promise of God that then God, it didn't say that he became right, righteous, but that he was reckoned now right. to be righteous. So, and we know from his past, his life that proceeded after that, that he was not always righteous. Correct. Um, he was a wimp when it came to being a, a husband. But in Paul, it is always God who justifies and man who is justified. Particularly characteristic of Paul's usage is his insistence that justification takes place by faith and not by works. And that's Doug Moo. Yeah. So, so faith and righteousness there, there's an inseparable connection between the two is what we're saying. Right. You, he doesn't just willy nilly just say, I'm going to make you. Yeah. It, it comes on the, on the vehicle or the instrument through which it's going to come is faith. faith. Yeah. So faith, faith is the instrument of this righteousness. Um, so Smith in his systematic theology says this, he says, the Bible speaks of justification by faith. It never speaks of justification on account of faith. You'll never see that phrase anywhere in the scriptures. Um, that's that's a, kind of a key distinction, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's always on account of Christ. He's the basis. But the instrument is faith. So, but, but think of how many people in their mind, they think they're justified on account of their faith. And so they've, they've made faith the, the reason why God accepts them. And it's not. It's right. the reason God accepts them. You're saying is Christ. Yeah. But the means by which we receive that, the instrument that gets that, is faith. Well, when we were when we were teaching through Philippians yesterday, uh, and we went through those seven characteristics for why Paul says, right, uh, this is not how salvation comes to you. And one of them was genuineness or sincerity. And so, just because you have faith or you're genuine about God or something, that doesn't mean anything. It needs to be faith in something concrete, namely yeah. Christ and Christ alone. This is why people who have faith are they're genuine, but they're, they're holding to false truth will not be saved in the end. Yeah. Luther does a real nice job on, I always mess up the title. It's like how to be sure you will spend eternity with God, I think. And he, uh, this, uh, this is probably before your time, the Tylenol scare. 
Yeah, Do you remember uh, that? No, I, the scare was not during my time, but I know what you're referring okay, to. Okay, yeah, there was a time where some guy had slipped some poison in some Tylenol and people died from it. And um, you could have faith all you wanted, Lutzer said, that this, when I take my Tylenol, I'm going to get better. But it doesn't matter how much faith you had. It was resting in something that was, in fact, poisonous. As much as you believed it was not, didn't change the fact of what it was. It's important that a person's faith, I like a, one way you can describe faith is almost like a resting, um, where you're now resting, not in what I must do, but what Christ has done on my behalf. Um, I think it was Doug Wilson said that the gospel is the great indicative and we keep making it an imperative. The great imperative, yeah. Yeah, we keep thinking it's what we must do rather than resting in what God has done. And yeah. I thought, that's so clean. Yeah. Just, would you stop? <laughs> would you <laughs> yeah. just stop and rest? Rest in Christ. And once you get there, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Anyhow, go ahead and finish yeah. that quote. So um, he says, the Bible speaks of justification by faith. It never speaks of justification on account of faith. Faith is not the ground of justification. The following forms of expression are what are used. You'll see through faith or of faith or by faith. So it's just showing that faith again is that instrument through which justification comes. From the biblical presentation, it is obvious that justification is related to our faith. Further, faith is not the consequence of justification, but the preceding instrument. There is some sort of instrumentality exercised by faith that is indispensable to the divine act of justification. While it is God who justifies the ungodly, it is only those who exercise faith in Christ who are justified. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you'll like this illustration or not. Um, I've heard it used um, that you kind of think of you're a starving man. Um, don't, read, don't go too far with this metaphor because we're dead in our sins. We're not starving. Um, but we're a starving person and we have this bowl of porridge that is nutritious and it will feed us um, and it will nourish us and save us and keep us alive. And the spoon is simply the thing, the instrument by which you will receive it. Um, you would never say this spoon is what saved me. Yeah. Um, you would, you, nobody would say that. They would say I was saved because I was able to eat this porridge. All that was, was just an instrument. In the same sense, Christ has accomplished this act, this work, and the means by which or the instrument by which we do it is faith. Yeah. But it is Christ who saves us. Yeah. No, that's good. Not and, bad? Yeah. And I would add to that, um, it was, I believe it was, it was Carson who also said it, it, you are also not saved by the intensity of your faith. Yes. Right? Yes. So yes, yes, yes. It's, it's not how strong a faith I have that matters either. And he pointed to that illustration of the Passover lamb um, in Exodus, uh, or the Passover blood of the lamb when it was spread over the doorpost. And he just gave the picture of two Jews, one being uh, very confident in God's promise that if you put the blood over the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over. And then there was another Jew who 
was really, really scared. <laughs> um, I could even <laughs> maybe even argue filled with doubts, but like, I don't know, but God, God said, said it. So let's so do I'm, it. <laughs> I'm doing it. Yeah. But yeah, but with trembling and hesitancy, yeah. maybe just a smear yeah. where the other one's slapping it on. He's like, him. yeah. And I think he's like, yeah. He's like, the other Jew was like, bring it on. We're safe. <laughs> and this is, but then the confident Jew looks at the weak Jew and said, but he's still going to do it. And the weak Jew goes, well, I'm not stupid. God said it, so I'm going to do it, but I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. And then he just po asked, poses the question. So on, the, on that night, the angel of death swept through. Who was saved? And his answer was Yeah, that's both. a good one. Both. Because it's not, you're saved, not by the intensity of your faith, but on the grounds of the blood of the lamb in that case. Yeah, Bunyan in his book on uh, Pilgrim's Progress, you have... The, I can't remember the guy's exact name, name, but he's the one of great faith. And he's mighty and strong, and he's always slaying everything. And the other guy is walking around with this crutch. <laughs> and he's always the last. He's always struggling. He's fearful. He's everything. Uh, but they both crossed over the river yeah. um, in, into eternity because it didn't matter. Right. Uh, you, you, there's going to be a lot of people who will enter the kingdom of God with much fear and trembling. But... The whole time that they're filled with those doubts, um, I actually get a little emotional about that because um, I've seen it pastorally. I've, I've watched people fear, filled with fear, yeah. and yet I've literally held the hand of a dying person as I talk to him about Christ, and, and they look at me and they're like, no, that's all I got. I'm like, you, your whole life that I've known as a pastor has been nothing but doubt, but here at the end, you're still clinging to Christ. Yeah. It might be again, terrified, and yet Christ is it. And I'm like, you have no idea what waits you on the other side. Yeah. And now they do. And it's like, that's that's just cool. Yeah. Good, it's good news for those who doubt and yes. lack assurance. I think so. Um, okay, so that's justification. Uh, it's, it's a very prominent theme and an important doctrine um, for the Christian faith. It, it is a doctrine that is tightly connected to the gospel. Uh, I wouldn't argue it's the gospel, but it's no. tightly connected to the gospel. And so it's important that we get it right. Um, and again, you can see this in the difference between uh, Roman Catholic theology and Protestantism. Uh, Roman Catholics think that justification is imparted to a person as they perform those good works, whereas Protestants think that justification is imputed to a person through the instrument of faith alone, but on the basis of Christ's good works alone. Yeah, so a, a, a Roman Catholic properly understanding this, they they become justified, and then through the keeping of the various sacraments, they add to that justification. Um, where in Protestant, we would say, no, you will never be more justified than you were on the day which you believed. Right. You don't become more declared righteous. All The only thing that's happening now is in your life, you are be becoming more like you already are, which we, yeah. we quoted earlier. Yeah. So that's uh, that's justification. Um, Very simple. Yeah, um, but but since faith alone is is such an important concept, and that's how justification is applied to a person, um, it's to to that topic next time that we'll turn to then, yeah. uh, which is faith. And so uh, until then, we would say make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on justification. Uh, and don't forget, as always, to like, share, comment, rate, review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell all your friends. Mm -hmm.